Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I intend to cover Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 22. I'm going to call this section, Faith of the Patriarchs. Chapter 11, of course, is the faith chapter. That's our context. In our previous seven verses, in the last audio, we discussed the faith of the antediluvians, Noah, Enoch, and so forth, Abel. The author of the book of Hebrews goes through the history of Israel, picking out heroes of faith, and he does it in chronological order, starting with the antediluvians, then going to the patriarchs, then going to Moses, and then going to the judges. So right now we're in the second part of chapter 11, talking about the faith of the patriarchs, verses 8 through 22. So we start with verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. Now Abraham, of course, is represented in the New Testament as the outstanding example of faith, even more so than all of the other heroes in the Faith Hall of Fame in chapter 11. For example, we see this in the New Testament. And the way I always remember this is just remember this. Galatians 3, Romans 4. Galatians 3, Romans 4. And you find out all about the faith of Abraham. Romans 4:11, And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe. Father Abraham of us all. That means Gentiles as well as Jews. The father of all who believe but are not circumcised, that would be Gentiles, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. He's the father of the Jews also ethnically, but also he's the father of us all who believe who are not circumcised, of all of us Gentiles. Romans 4.16, this is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, that's Jews, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. That would be Gentiles. He is the father of us all. So we have the faith of Abraham. We are descendants of Abraham. We are inheritance of the promise. We're Christians. In other words, members of the new covenant. Galatians 3, 7, Paul says, Then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. So I have faith. I'm Abraham's sons. You have faith. You are Abraham's sons. No, doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or not. Galatians 3, 9, So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. So Abraham is the classic example the example par excellence of someone who had faith. Now, notice this is a minor detail. Abraham, when he was called, was actually not called Abraham at the time. He was called Abram. His name was changed to Abraham after his call, as John Gill points out. Where's the call to Abraham? Let's read it. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land. I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Of course, is the famous land, offspring, and blessing promise. Uh, no mention of land here, I'm sorry, but it is a mention of great nation, the offspring, and the blessing to all the nations on earth. Now, when was Abraham called? He was in Haran in Syria, which unfortunately ISIS, I understand, is wrecked, had a bunch of Interesting historical monuments there. This is in Syria, or northern Iraq, southern Syria, around in that area. He was called from Haran. He had already been called from Ur. He left Ur and went up to Haran. Then went from Haran into the Promised Land. Now notice that Abraham, he didn't just have faith in his heart. He did something about it. He went out. He left the security of his home there in Haran and all of his relatives who were staying there. And he went out by himself. So... Faith is not just an internal attitude of trust and belief. It's coupled with action. You'll see this over and over in the Faith Hall of Fame. And he went out, as he was, after he was called from Haran, he went out to a place, that's the promised land, he was going to receive his inheritance, but he did not know where he was going. He wandered all around, living in tents in that promised land, and it was really his descendants who received his, his inheritance. Abraham never really got any more than just a, a burial place for his relatives down there at the Oak of Mamre. So that took a lot of faith what Abraham did. Going out to a, a land he didn't know anything about. It was peopled by Canaanites. Nasty people. <laughs> he went out not knowing where he's going. He left the security of his homeland and went out. That takes faith. The substance of things not seen. He didn't know where he was going because he couldn't see it. That's what faith is. The substance of things not seen. The reality of things not seen. We go to verse 9, Hebrews 11. By faith he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. Now that land that he went to, the Canaan land, that is a type or shadow of heaven. 
as John Gill says, in my opinion, it's more than just heaven. It's really the kingdom of heaven, which includes the church on this life too, the new covenant in this life on this earth, as well as life in the afterlife. It's heaven, but it's also the kingdom of God on earth too. That's what the land is a symbol of, or a type of, or a shadow of. Why is it called the land of promise? Because the land was promised to Abraham. It's part of the famous promise, land, seed, and blessing. You can read about these promises. This is off the top of my head, but it's in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and it was repeated, I think, in Genesis 22 to Isaac. I'm not going to read them to you. This is very, very common knowledge. I just remember it by the, the acronym LOB, land, offspring, and blessings. God lobbed a bunch of stuff to Abraham, land, offspring, and blessing. Now, living in tents, this mode of dwelling showed that Abraham was a sojourner and an alien, not a permanent resident, because permanent residents don't live in tents. You think about the Bedouins in the Arabian Desert today, they live in tents. I've been in a Bedouin tent. Now, it's a nice tent. It's not one of these little pup tents that you camp out with your kids in. I mean, it's a big, monstrous tent with tables and food in it, but it's still tents. <laughs> if he wasn't planning on living as an alien, he would have built a permanent home there, but he never did. He never acquired any land in Canaan except for burial places I mentioned earlier. Adam Clark points it out because Canaan is a mere type and a pledge of a better country. He moved his tents from place to place, so he was a pilgrim. He was an alien. He was a sojourner. He didn't set his roots down in this world because he's looking for something better. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Of course, those are his. Jacob was 15 years old at Abraham's death, so he was still around when Abraham was around. Now, they're co-heirs. Now, Jameson Fawcett Brown says something interesting here. Being a co-heir means that Isaac did not inherit the promise from Abraham, nor did Jacob inherit the promise from Isaac. But they all inherited directly from God as fellow heirs. Now, I don't know what I think about that. I mean, it seems to me the promise passed down from Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob. So I just mentioned that since Jameson Fawcett Brown mentioned it. Maybe somebody else might use that for future research. I don't know. We go to verse 10, Hebrews 11. For he, that's Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking forward with eager expectation. Romans 8:19 for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Just like the creation is looking forward to the establishment of the new covenant permanently on this earth. Likewise, Abraham is looking forward with confident expectation, with eager expectation, to a different place than the promised land in Canaan. He was looking to that city that has foundations. The city, of course, is the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12:22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, thy heavenly Jerusalem to myriads of angels in festive gathering. Hebrews 13:14. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come, an enduring city to come. That's the heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 2 through 4. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. That means heavenly, coming down out of heaven. So this New Jerusalem is the heavenly Jerusalem, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I believe that the New Jerusalem is the new covenant. A lot of people because they have an excess of futurism in their genes. They keep talking about the New Jerusalem as the new heavens and the new earth and making that refer to the final state. I believe the New Jerusalem, as well as the new heavens and the new earth, for complicated theological reasons which I can't go into here, all of that refers to the new covenant, in my humble opinion. So, he's looking forward to the establishment of the new covenant on earth, that city that has foundations, the New Jerusalem. Of course, the foundations of a city is opposed to a tent. A tent doesn't have foundation. You drive the stakes in the ground and you peg it down. If you go to a city, the walls have foundations and all the buildings in the city have foundations. They, you dig trenches in the ground, you pour concrete or mortar or whatever however they did it back then, put something hard in the, in the ground and built the city on top of that. And of course, this is all talking metaphorically. It's not a physical city in the heavens. It's because the architect and builder of this new city is God. And that's what he's looking for. He's looking for us. He was looking for the church that we are in now. The church which is going to end up being taken to heaven and established on the new, in, in a new world, which, quite frankly, is going to be quite wonderful compared to the world we have now. Foundations are permanent, tense or not. We go now to Hebrews 11:11. 11, 11. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, means past the age of having a kid, since she considered that the one who promised was faithful. 
Now, interesting point here. The Greek is unclear as to whether it was Sarah or Abraham who had the faith to conceive. John Gill points that out. The argument in favor that it was Abraham who had faith that Sarah would conceive, we get from the context. The next verse says, Therefore from one man, in fact from one as good as dead, that's Abraham, he's good as dead because he was so old, from one man came the offspring as numerous as stars. So it was Abraham's faith, according to this argument, that Sarah was able to conceive. Romans 4.17 says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He, Abraham, believed in God. It was Abraham's faith. Sarah's not mentioned there. Well, okay. But you know what? The argument in favor of Sarah is it, it sounds like Sarah. By faith, even Sarah herself received power to conceive offspring. And who was it that they considered that God who had promised was faithful? Who was it? She since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. So I think that's sucking air to say that this is Abraham's faith. This is Sarah's faith. She believed she was to have children. Now, of course, you've got a problem of laughing when she laughed and all that kind of stuff. But basically, she believed God, that he was faithful. She was unable to have children. We see that in Genesis 11.30. Sarah was unable to conceive. She did not have a child in Genesis 18.11 and 12. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself after I've become shriveled up that my Lord is old. Will I have delight? Now, this complicated is what this laughing business is. I'm not going to get into that, but, and that shows that it, it tends to indicate that she didn't have any faith right there. But it could be she was laughing in delight because she did have faith. That's where the controversy is. But at any rate, I believe here that the author of the book of Hebrews is saying that Sarah had faith that she was going to conceive. And again, faith is the substance of things not seen. She could not see how an old man and an old lady could have a baby. But it happened. It happened, we see in Genesis seventeen nineteen. But God said, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his future offspring. And then in Genesis 21, 2, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him. So God's promises were true. And Abraham and Sarah were wise to rely in faith on God's promises. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. That one man, of course, is Abraham. He was good as dead because he was 100 years old. As the NIV study Bible says, we read that in Genesis 21, 5. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Romans 4.19 says he considered his own body to be already dead. That's Abraham since he was about 100 years old. He didn't think there was going to be any living sperm in a 100-year-old body. He also considered the deadness of Sarah's womb without weakening in the faith. So he, he looked at it. He said, well, this doesn't look good. I'm 100. I think Sarah was 99. Oh, my gosh, this is too old to be having a baby. They had a baby. Now, remember, Abraham had already been given a covenant promise of a world full of offspring. Offspring is... Many is the stars of the sky and the grains of the sands of the sea, by the sea. That's a lot of offspring, and yet he's good as dead. He's a dead man, speaking fertilely, <laughs> said his wife had a dead womb. Now, see, this is the thing. A lot of times it's real hard to see how God's going to do something good when things look so bad. That's why it is so important to take our eyes off of the circumstances and believe what God's told us and quit worrying about how bad things look. Things always look bad. I'm living in America right now where things look so bad. I, 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 I've gone on a news fast. This week, I will not read the news. It's so bad. Let me give you a date so in case somebody wants to come back and figure out what was going on at the time. Today is, what is today? Today is July the 29th, 2020. If America is still here when you hear this audio, you can go back and see what happened on that date in history. All right, so from this dead man, Abraham came offspring in Hebrews 11:12, as numerous as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand. Now, these offspring are physical descendants of Abraham. They are types of the ultimate spiritual descendants who are Christians, as I've already mentioned in Galatians 3 and Romans 4. So that's we've got to keep in mind there that, that this is a... We don't want to lose the forest with the trees. The forest is the whole church is going to be covering the world as the waters cover the sea in the future, about 4,000 years in the future where we are now. Where are the scriptures that God promised offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven? We see that in Genesis 15:5. He, God, took him, Abraham, aside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, Your offspring will be that numerous. 
Genesis 22:17. I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. Genesis 26, 4, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. Now, Genesis 26, 4, the stars of the sky promise was to Isaac. It was a reconfirmation of the promise to Abraham, but it's still the same promise. And then as far as the grains of the sea, the descendants being as numerous as the grains of the sand. I'm sorry, the grains of the sand by the sea. Genesis 13:16. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. This was fulfilled, we see in 1 Kings 4.20, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. It was physically fulfilled, not spiritually. Spiritually, it's fulfilled in Christians covering the earth. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. They were eating, drinking, and rejoicing. Isaiah 10.22, Israel, even if your people were as numerous as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. That's talking about Babylonian captivity. And uh, But Isaiah mentions that, Israel would be as numerous as the sand of the sea physically. Hosea 1.10, you yet the member of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. So you see this idea of sand of the sea, or the sand by the sea, offspring being as numerous as the sand. It was in the Jewish DNA, if you will. Everybody knew about that promise to Abraham. But it started out with a, a dead man, one as good as dead sexually, and his wife who is good as dead sexually they can't produce any more heirs and yet they ended up producing heirs that covered the earth covered the land of israel first physically and then later spiritually covered the earth god is able to call into being that which is not we go now to hebrews 11 verse 13 these all died in faith without having received the promises but they saw them from a distance greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth all died in faith. All who died in faith. Well, it could be all who was previously mentioned in the chapter, namely Sarah, Abraham, Noah, and Abel. And Enoch was mentioned too, but he didn't really die. He was transferred immediately to heaven without having to die, at least it, apparently so. So we don't count him, but it would be all the ones mentioned before died in faith without having to receive the promise. But the problem with that is, how did they see the promises? How did they greet the promises? The promises weren't in effect then because Abraham came after them. So uh, probably a better option as to who all died in faith without having received the promises is those beginning with Abraham who would receive the promises, but who didn't see the fulfillment of the promises. That would not include Abel, Enoch, and Noah because they didn't receive the promise, but it would include people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I guess you could say also the sons of Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. Now, their descendants did see the promises. They ended up filling the land, as we saw in 1 Kings 4.20. Israel and Judah eventually became numerous as the stars and as the grains of the sea. But those original patriarchs did not see that. Their descendants saw it, but the patriarchs didn't see it. So I think that's who the author of Hebrews is referring to here. These All these patriarchs died in faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died in faith without, without having received the promises. Now, when it says receive the promises, that means receive the fulfillment of the promises. They, they had actually received the promise from God, obviously, but they hadn't received the fulfillment of the promises. They saw them from a distance. They believed strongly, but they saw dimly. Faith is the essence of things not seen. Going back to this idea of they all died in faith without having received the promises, well, you could say, well, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah did see the birth of Isaac finally, so they received the promise. That was just one. The promise of the star, the, uh, numerous offspring like the stars in the sand, Abraham and Isaac, Abraham and Sarah didn't see that. They only saw Isaac. So they still didn't receive the result of the promises. They had to wait. They had to look at it from a distance. It says here in verse 13 that these patriarch, patriarchs greeted the promises. The King James has embraced the promises, which to me is a much better translation than greeted the promises. I don't know what that means, to greet a promise. But they embraced them and said, yes, 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 we believe them. And then they confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. When they, by saying that is that, hey, this land of Canaan, where we are, is not our home. We're only here temporarily because we got something better coming. We have the fulfillment of the promise. They said they were foreigners. A foreigner is never completely at home. He never feels completely at home in his host country. And I, li I lived as a foreigner for roughly 20 years in China, my host country. I was called a foreigner. I remember the first time I realized that Chinese people were calling me foreigners. I thought, I never thought of myself as a foreigner. It was weird. I got finally got used to it. But 
You never feel completely at home. You always wonder, where's the American embassy in case something happens here? Oh, my gosh, they took my passport, and now I don't... I, my passport? Where's my passport? I can't, what, if they, what if somebody stops me and I don't have my passport? I never quite felt totally comfortable, especially when you had to go to the hospital. Whew. So you never feel at home in a foreign land. And Abraham never felt at home in Israel because he was looking for his home, the heavenly Jerusalem. He lived in tents for the rest of his life. He never settled down. He's looking for his heavenly home. Hebrews 11:9 by faith, he, Abraham, stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise. He was an alien. He was a foreigner in the land of promise, in the Canaan land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. We go to verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews 11. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now there is not talking about now temporarily. It's talking about as a result of the previous arguments of May. Now I need to tell you something further. Uh, the, and the reason what he had mentioned early, he has mentioned all those heroes of faith in the previous verses in Hebrews 11. He's saying now that I've mentioned all those, I don't apostatize. These guys, these heroes of faith are seeking a homeland. So you guys need to hold on and realize that you are sojourners in Israel, in Jerusalem now. You're aliens. That's not your home. So hold on and quit thinking that you're going to go back to your temporary home and think it's going to be a permanent home. Your temporary home is about to get burnt down by the Romans in AD 70. So why would you go back there? Seek the homeland, Hebrew Christians. Don't apostatize. The author is mentioning this now. Having said such things, he's exhorting them to obey the exhortations of the previous chapter. Chapters in verses 19 to 39, I'll give you a summary of these. He said, draw near to God in verse 22, chapter 10. Hold on to the confession of our hope in verse 23 of chapter 10. Don't neglect assembling yourselves together in verse 25 of chapter 10. Don't throw away your confidence in verse 35 of chapter 10. Don't do all that. Now that I've said all that, those who say such things, say what things that they're pilgrims and strangers on the earth? They make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. So in other words... The reason that I'm telling you to draw near to God, to hold on to the confession of your hope, and to not neglect assembling yourselves together and not throwing away your confidence is because you have a homeland that is perfect. Later on, he's going to say a city with foundations, or maybe he's already said it, a city with foundations in heaven. So you don't need to go back to Jerusalem, the old Israel that's getting ready to, get, be, getting ready to be burnt down. You are a pilgrim and a stranger on the earth just like Abraham was. So don't go trying to get too comfortable in Jerusalem because it's not going to save you when it gets burnt down. Now, they, the, the patriarchs were seeking a homeland. What's the homeland? What's heaven, basically, or the new covenant? The new heavens and the new earth, which is the new covenant, in my opinion. Second Peter 3.13, but based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. There's our permanent home. That's our city with foundations. Now, heaven is sometimes compared to a country, sometimes to a city. Here, it's a homeland, a country. But, you know, going home to your homeland, it's something that everybody has. I know in China, people, they say that old people will always migrate back to their old, even the old, the, 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 the district that they grew up in, in a big city, or their old country village. Or they'll just go back there. They want to go back there. And then I read something years ago that Somebody had done some kind of survey and found out that the great majority of Americans died within 25 miles of their hometown where they were born. I know President Nixon died on the, in the same, you could throw a baseball from where he was born to where he was buried, which is kind of strange. But it's human nature, folks, to want to go back to your home here on Earth, you go back to your homeland. I remember when I was in China, I used to have dreams about the beach, about the, sky, the surf and the sand, and the seagulls twerping, and the blue skies, and the salt spray blowing through my hair, and, and the waves crashing on my body as I body surfed in, because I was a long way from that in China. And I'd have these dreams, these vivid dreams of it. And I'd think, oh, I wish I was home. Cool. Then I'd think about, I want to come back to my country home. I want to see the deer. I want to feel the wind blowing through the porch. Of course, you get back, and of course, what do you see? Fire ants, the tractor's broke, can't cut the grass, snakes all over the place. But still, it's home. It's the idea of home. You want to go home. Well, our homeland in heaven is a perfect place. There ain't no fire ants there. And we all long to go home. If in the natural we long to go home, how much more so 
spiritually do we long to go home and be in heaven with Jesus forever? How often do we do we have that feeling? So we need to look around and look at our present life and realize, yeah, this world's important, and we need to behave responsibly here. It's a proving ground. It's it's a war zone, and we need to act bravely, courageously, and we need to raise our families. We need to do all that. But in the midst of all that, we need to remember, this ain't our home. We're going home when we die, and let's don't flinch from that. Let's don't think it's a bad thing that we die. Let's say, hot dog, I'm going home where I want to be. Now, these Hebrew Christians who were tempted to go back to what they thought was their homeland, but which was only temporary, let's look and see what the scriptures have. What kind of attitude does the, do the Holy Scriptures have towards that old Jerusalem that these Hebrew Christians were tempted to go back to? Hebrews 13:14. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Ah, so Jerusalem is not enduring. It's temporary. Well, that's because it's about to get burnt down, AD 70. Galatians 4, 24 and 25 and 26. These things are illustrations for the women, that's Sarah and Hagar, represent the two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. She was not a child of the promise. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. That's the law and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So the present Jerusalem is a product of law, Mosaic law. For she, Hagar, is in slavery with her children. So Hagar and her descendants, those descendants of the law, those Jews, those Pharisees and Sadducees in Jerusalem are in slavery. That's the old Jerusalem. Is that what you want to go back to, Hebrew Christians? Verse 26, Galatians 4, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, our Christian mother, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, heavenly, above, heavenly, the Jerusalem above is our mother. So look at what what the scripture says about the old Jerusalem. It produces slavery. It's, it's temporary, Hebrews 13, 14. It won't last. It produces slavery in Galatians 4. Now in Revelation 11, the old Jerusalem is compared to Sodom in Egypt. This is talking about the two witnesses, verse 8, Revelation 11. Their dead bodies will lie in the public square of the great city. That's referring to the Old Testament ministry of prophecy. The two witnesses were Moses and Elijah. And in the vision, these prophets were killed and lying in the public square of the great city. Now, what's the great city? Well, it's where their Lord was crucified. So that's obviously Jerusalem because that's where Jesus was crucified. So they will lie in the public square of Jerusalem, which prophetically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So Jerusalem is called Sodom. Well, what's Sodom noted for? Homosexual perversion and rebellion against God. Destruction, burnt to this crisp, just like Jerusalem was getting ready to be burnt to a crisp. And Egypt, which kept the children of Israel in slavery. So there again, the new Jerusalem is connected with slavery, just like it was in Galatians 4. That's what you want to go back to, Hebrew Christians? Revelation 18.10, they will stand far off in fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city. Well, what's Babylon? Notice it's called the great city. Well, hey, in Revelation, Revelation 11, verses, verse 8, the great city is Jerusalem, the public square of the great city, where also their Lord was crucified. The great city where their Lord was crucified, that's Jerusalem. And so in Revelation 18, the great city is now called Babylon. So Jerusalem is compared to Babylon. What is Babylon? Babylon is the country that took the Jews, burnt their city down. Once again, that idea of burning the city down, 586 B.C. is when it happened the first time. And then they took the Israelites into slavery. So once again, Jerusalem is compared to slavery. That's what you want to go back to, Hebrews, Christians, that I'm writing to? The author of Hebrews is probably saying, no, we want a homeland in the heavens. Verse 15, if they, the patriarchs, were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. Of course, they first came from Ur of the Chaldees down there at the head of the Persian Gulf, famous place, found long before Abraham, actually. And then, of course, Abraham went to Haran. If the patriarchs had wanted to go back to Haran or back to Ur, they could have done so any time during their life. They never could have, but they never did because they weren't looking for a temporary home. They weren't saying, oh, I want to go back to Egypt where it's safe and secure. I want to go back to Ur where it's safe and secure. I want to go back to Haran. Or in my case, I'm in China. Oh, I want to go back to South Carolina. Come back to South Carolina and all hell breaks loose. Because our earthly homelands are not permanent. They will bring you slavery if you try to find happiness in them. You need to look for the city that has sure foundations, the kingdom of God. Hebrews 11:16. but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. That's the patriarchs. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 
Now there's a problem here. They now desire a better place. Well, the saints that have been spoken of, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, they're already in heaven. So how are they desiring a better place, a heavenly one? They already got it. They're there. They're in heaven. Well, here's some options to answer that. This is my suggestion. They're in heaven, but they still desire it. They still long for it. They still love it. That might be a weak answer because it sounds like they're desiring something they don't have. But you can desire something that you do have already. However, probably it's a translation problem because I found a lot of other translations that put that desiring in the past. But they desired a better place. For example, the Amplified has they were yearning for and aspiring to a better place. The patriarchs were. The NIV says they were longing for a better place. The New Living Translation says they were looking for a better place. The New Century Version says they were waiting for a better place. The New Life Translation says they wanted a better place. However, there are many translations that have it in the present, including Young's literal translation. So I don't know. I haven't really studied the Greek too much there to explain that little minor point. I'm just going to assume they desired a better place in the past. While they were on earth, they were desiring a heavenly place. God, they they desired a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Again, the New Jerusalem is compared to a homeland, a country, and sometimes it's prepared to a city. Let me show you how. Well, before I do that, let's re- remind ourselves of verse 10 here in the same chapter 11. It says, he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so the idea of city is repeated here in verse 16. God has prepared a city for them. Now let's show in Hebrews chapter 11 and one quote in in chapter 13 how the author of the book of Hebrews uses two different metaphors to refer to the New Jerusalem. He sometimes compares the kingdom of God to a city and sometimes he refers the kingdom of God to a homeland, a country, a land. They're really interchangeable as NIV Study Bible points out. Hebrews 11, 9 through 10. By faith, he, Abraham, stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise. So there's your country. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Verse 10, Hebrews 11, 4. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations. So we got the land of promise and the city that has foundations. It's the same thing, same metaphor. Country or city. Hebrews 11, 14 through 16. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. There's your country. Verse 15 of Hebrews 11, if they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Homeland in verse 14, a city in verse 15. In Hebrews 13, two chapters later, in verse 14, for we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one, the city, to come. So, just to keep the metaphor straight in your head, it's both. A homeland, your home, and it's a city which is strong and permanent. Heaven is the kingdom of God. Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and he was offering the his unique son, the one it had been said about, your seed will be traced through Isaac. Now, Abraham, again, is said to have faith here. Well, this was Abraham's second big act of faith. Remember, leaving Ur for Canaan was the first one. Left Ur, went to Haran, went to Canaan. Offering up Isaac to be sacrificed was the second big act of Abraham's life. Now, Abraham was tested by God. That shows that it's perfectly okay for God to test our faith, make things hard for us to see whether we believe him. I don't like it. Who likes tests? Did you like taking an algebra test? Calculus test? Whatever test it was that you took, ham radio operators test back in the past, whatever. Do you like that? I don't know anybody that likes tests, but it's necessary to prove, to show that you got what it takes. And Abraham proved it in his life, first by going to the promised land, and secondly by offering up his only unique son on an altar to kill, to, to be killed. So Abraham was tested. Faith requires action that is based on that subjective mental attitude of faith. Faith is not alone. It's not just internal, mental. It's external. Abraham did something. He went to the promised land and he put Isaac up on the altar. James 2.21 says this, Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Justified there means vindicated, not declared legally righteous before God, but he was vindicated by his works when he offered Isaac on the altar. So the works were, were a reflection of his faith. His offering up Isaac on the altar was a reflection of his faith in God, his faith in the promise that God had made concerning numerous descendants. 
because if Isaac goes, that's the end of the <laughs> end of the promise. There's no more descendants once Isaac goes. We see in Genesis 22:1 also that God explicitly tested Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Now that word tested is, is difficult because it has two meanings in the English. It has two meanings in the Chinese too, I've discovered. And, it's, and the two meanings sometimes overlap. Generally, to test means to try to prove something, put it under stress so they can prove that it can pass the test, that the testee, if you will, the tested one, can pass the test. Like when your t- algebra teacher gives you an algebra test. It's not meant to destroy you. It's meant to build you up. On the other hand, tempted means, tempting is a a trial, a test, but it's a trial or a test to seduce you into evil to destroy you. So that's, that's the bad sense of the word test. Well, God will test our faith like he tested Abraham's faith. You can count on that. But tested is not, does not mean tempted to lead into, to to seduce into evil, as we see in James 1.13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Now, Isaac here is said to be Abraham's unique son, which is kind of a funny translation. The NIV has one and only son, which I think sounds better. Let's look at this idea of Isaac being the one and only son. Genesis 22.2. Take your son, God said. He said, your only son, Isaac, your one and only son. Genesis 22.12. Then he, God, said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son, your one and only son, from me. Genesis 22:16. By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing, have not withheld your only son, your one and only son. Joel 3:16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. That's John 3:16. I'm sorry. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, his one and only son. Now, there's a couple of problems here. First of all is Isaac was not Isaac's, excuse me, uh, Jacob, excuse me, Isaac was not Abraham's one and only son because Abraham also had Ishmael. How do you answer that? Well, here's the answer. Ish- Isaac was the only son in the, la- in the line of promise who could inherit the promise. So he was the unique son that could carry on the promise because remember, Ishmael was not born of promise. She was born of law. She was born of Hagar, the concubine. Sarah got fed up. She wasn't getting pregnant, so she got Abraham to get it on with Hagar so they could have, so they could do God's work for him and fulfill God's promises through their own flesh. So she, so Ishmael didn't count. Isaac was the only person in that line of descent, in the promised line of descent, that could carry out that promise. And, and then God tempted Abraham by saying, I want you to kill him. Now, that's a test, folks. That is a monstrous test. That's the first problem. What about Ishmael, which I think I just answered? The next problem is, is how do we translate that one and only? The word is monogonese, which traditionally has been translated only begotten. One and only son, only begotten son. It, that's literally what it means, only begotten. Well, here's what Steve Atkinson says about this. The word only is from monogenes and literally means only begotten. It is the same word used in John 3.16, only begotten. The fact is that at the time of the sacrifice, Abraham already had another son, Ishmael, by Hagar. Thus, monogenes does not necessarily literally mean only begotten, but rather unique. Isaac was unique in that he was the only son of promise through Sarah, as I've already mentioned that. The emphasis is really on uniqueness, not on being begotten. In a sense, Jesus was never begotten because he has always existed, but he is the unique God-man. Now, let me say that most of the modern translations, I think now, have gotten away from that phrase, only begotten, which is a very traditional phrase. They say the one and only in the sense that Jesus is so unique. They get away from begotten because it sounds like Jesus is born, which he never was. He was always God. He was always co-equal with God the Father eternally existing in the trinity when you say only begotten it sounds like hey he's born i think if you look at most of the translations they have gotten away from only begotten and they say the one and only he's unique in the sense that he bore the sins of the world like nobody else could verse 18 hebrews 11 says the one referring to isaac the one it had been said about your seed will be traced through isaac well where was it said in the old testament that the seed the promised seed, the promised descendants of Abraham will be traced through Isaac. Well, we see in Genesis 21:12. but God said to Abraham, do not be concerned about the boy and your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. 
I think I think if I remember correctly, Genesis twenty one twelve is talking about Ishmael and your slave Hagar. Don't worry about them. Don't, it doesn't matter because your offspring is going to come through Isaac. Paul repeats that idea from Genesis in Romans 9, 7. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Neither are all the Jews children of Abraham because they're Abraham's descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. So there's other children of Abraham going through Ishmael. But nope, that's not what counts. Your offspring will be traced through Isaac. So Abraham was offering the one and only child, the one and only son who could carry on that offspring promise. We go now to Hebrews 11:19. He, Abraham, considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead, and as an illustration, he received him back. Well, let's look at how Abraham considered God to be even able to raise someone from the dead. The idea is, well, if I'm going to go up here and kill him, and there's going to be a promised seed springing from Isaac, there's only one answer to this problem is, I'm going to kill him, and then God's going to raise him back from the dead. Now, folks, that takes some faith. But the author of Hebrews says in verse 19, he considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Romans 4:20 20 through 21, Paul says this, He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, because he was fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able also to perform, even though he was about to kill Isaac on an altar. Genesis 22:5, we read this, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we will come back to you. Hmm, he's going up there to kill him, but we're going to come back. That can only mean one thing. Abraham thought that Isaac was going to be raised from the dead, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Now, all of this is said to be an illustration. In verse 19, Hebrews 11, he considered God to be able, able even to raise someone from the dead. And as an illustration, he received him back. Well, what's the illustration? Well, the resurrection of Isaac figuratively occurred when the substitute ram was provided. This is how the illustration works. When the ram died, Isaac died figuratively. Because Isaac was rescued from the sacrifice, he was resurrected figuratively. And even the scripture shows that, at least some people say, that the New Testament scripture shows that Abraham saw this substitution of the ram for Isaac as a figure of resurrection. John 8:56. Your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day, see Jesus' day. He saw it and rejoiced. Well, I'm not so sure that John was referring to this particular incident, but if he was, this is what Abraham saw. He saw a ram that was sacrificed, even as the future Messiah was to be sacrificed, and he saw that Isaac was resurrected, even as the future Messiah was resurrected. We see it. I don't know how much Abraham saw it. So I'm not sure that John 8:56 is referring to Abraham actually saw the coming resurrected Messiah. I could be wrong, but... I know we can see it is very clear. The typology is quite obvious. Hebrews 11:20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Now, here's a problem. How could Isaac be acting in faith when he was deceived by Jacob? You remember the story. Isaac's getting old. He's blind and wants to pass on his, his birthright, his blessing to his son, eldest son, who was Esau. Esau was out hunting, having a good time. Rebecca wanted her favorite son, Jacob, to receive the blessings the trickster, I think his name stands for deceit. <laughs> so they dressed Jacob up with a hairy animal skin and dipped him. I think they dipped him in blood even, you know, made him look like a hunter, which he wasn't. Jacob goes to Isaac and says, let me get my blessing. And so blind, Esau, uh, blind Isaac says, okay, here's your blessing, Esau. But it was really Jacob. And so he passed the blessing on to Jacob. And the question is, is, well, he was suckered. So how is that by faith passing on a blessing? Well, the answer to that is from John Gill. He says that Jacob believed the person he was blessing was going to receive the promises. He was wrong about the particular error of the promises. He thought it was Esau going to receive the, the promises, and it wasn't. It was Jacob. So he's wrong about that, but he wasn't wrong about the idea that the promises were going to be passed down through the descendants. So he had faith, too. He He is... Still, and ex he he still shows the faith of Abraham because he was carrying out the the old promise of offspring, land, offspring, and blessing. There's the offspring. Isaac says, "My offspring's going to receive the blessing." He was wrong about which offspring, but he was right about the idea that the offspring was going to receive the blessing. Now, the another interesting thing here is it says that Isaac blessed Esau as well as Jacob. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. And I thought to myself, well, when was Esau blessed? Well, I have to poke it around a little bit. 
I came up with Genesis 27, 39 through 40. His father Isaac answered him, answered Esau, Look, your dwelling place will be away from the richness of the land, away from the dew of the sky above. You will live by your sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you rebel, you will break his yoke from your neck. So basically, Isaac gave Esau what later came to be called Edom. Edom means red, if I remember correctly. Esau means red because he was kind of a ruddy type, hunter-type guy. And so basically, Abraham said, you got Edom, which is kind of rocky, kind of desolate. It's away from the richness of the land, as he put it. He, he got an inheritance. It wasn't as much as he could have had, but he got something. And he was going to have to be a military-type guy living by the sword out there in that rough Edomite land. So he got, he got a blessing, too. It was not a good blessing, but it was something. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob, and he saw concerning things to come. The things to come were the blessing through Isaac, the land, the offspring, and the blessings. Hebrews 11.21, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. This story is told in Genesis 48, as Jacob was about to die. This was the usual time of blessing for the patriarchs, as John Gill says, and the reason for that is people may pay more attention when people are dying. So they all gathered around Jacob on his bed as he's going to pass the blessings down. The sons of Joseph were. Now, one of his sons, one of Jacob's sons was Joseph, who of course had been down there in Egypt the whole time. And Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So here it's mentioned that not Joseph himself was not blessed, but rather his two sons were, Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. Now, I ask myself, well, why does the author of Hebrews mention that? If you read the story, that's exactly what happened. Remember, Jacob tried to put his hand on Manasseh's head, excuse me, on uh, Ephraim's head, the younger son's head, and, and Joseph said, whoa, 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 dad, you got your hand on the wrong kid. Manasseh's the oldest kid. And Jacob said, well, no, I want to bless Ephraim because he's going to be, Manasseh's going to get a blessing, but Ephraim's going to have a bigger blessing, and the history of Israel bore that out. Ephraim became a, a very strong and numerous tribe. Manasseh did not, if you recall that story. But at any rate, at any rate, both Ephraim and Manasseh were blessed. Why is that mentioned here? Well, I think the reason is, is because we see Jacob seeing the offspring blessing, land, offspring, and blessings to the nation, the offspring promise, I should say. It's being passed down to his sons, but now when he takes his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, now he's seeing the promise go further into the future. And we see it, too, in the, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. The author of the Hebrews is saying, look at here, this promise is, is carrying on. It's going just, it's not just the 12 patriarchs, it's the grandsons of one of the patriarchs. Jacob says in Genesis 48, verse 5, your two sons, that's Joseph, uh, excuse me, that's Ephraim and Manasseh, were born to you in the land of Egypt, born to you, Joseph, in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are now mine. In other words, they are going to receive the promise from me. Ephraim and Manasseh belong to me just as Reuben and Simeon do. Now, here's a little minor detail, which we ought to look at. It said that Jacob, when he was giving these blessings to his sons, he was leaning on the top of his staff as he was dying. Leaning on the top of his staff in Hebrews 11. But if you go back to Genesis 47:31, it doesn't say leaning on the top of his staff. It says he bowed at the head of his bed. Genesis 47:31. And Jacob said, Swear to me, so Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed in thanks at the head of his bed. So how do we reconcile head of the bed with leaning on the top of his staff? I've got three options here. Here's Clark's suggestion. When Joseph swore to him that he should be carried up from Egypt, he bowed himself on his... That's when Joseph swore to Jacob that he, Jacob, should be carried up from Egypt. He, Jacob, bowed himself on his bed's head, still supporting himself with his staff which probably with this last act he laid aside, gathered up his feet, and reclined wholly on his couch. It was therefore indifferent to say that he worshipped or bowed himself on his staff or on his head's bed. In other words, Clark just separates the two things out in time and says, okay, he leaned on his staff, climbed into bed, dropped the staff, and he's lying in the bed. So the, in, when he, the book of Hebrews talks about it, he mentions the staff, which happened first, and then when he lied on his, laid on his bed, that was the second thing that happened. That could be. I got another idea. Jacob sits at the head of his bed. He puts the staff on his floor and leans on the staff. Why not? That's perfectly reasonable, in my humble opinion. Or it could be a manuscript problem. In one place you have mitah, which means a bed, which would be that 
word which was used in Genesis 47:31, mitah, a bed. You change the vowel points in the Masoretic text, and the word mitah becomes mate, which means a staff. So the words are so close, it could be a manuscript problem. It's a minor problem. Who cares? I think it's just as easy to say he was at the head of his bed and he leaned on the top of his staff at the same time, either right before he got into bed or while he was in the bed, he put the staff on the floor and leaned on it, sat up, and gave the blessing. We go now to Hebrews 11.22. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. Now, why is Joseph... How does Joseph show faith here? Well, God had told Abraham that his descendants would be in Egypt for around 400 years. Joseph had not been there nearly that long. He knew that the Hebrews would be in Egypt hundreds of years after he had died, but he still wanted his bones to be carried back to the promised land. The promise, the promise, that that meant so much in the Old Testament. He still had faith that his bones would be placed in the promised land, even though it was a couple hundred years later before they would be an exodus out of Israel. Now, Hebrews 11.22 says Joseph mentioned the Exodus. When did Joseph mention the Exodus? We read in Genesis 50.24 and 25. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land. That's the Exodus. Bring you up from this land to the land he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here, which they did. So there's Joseph mentioning the Exodus to his brothers as he's about to die. When you leave this land and go back to the promised land, I'm telling you this thing is so deep in the Jewish DNA is the land, the land, the Eretz, the land, because it was the type of the eternal land, the kingdom of God. Why does Joseph get, why did Joseph give instructions concerning his bones to be carried back to the promised land? Why not his whole body? Well, because Joseph knew his corpse could not make it back to the promised land. It was a very hot climate going from Egypt to the promised land, so it would have to be his bones only, not his whole body. Now, Joseph showed a lot of faith here, as the author says, because he gave up the glory of Egypt to be buried with the patriarchs. You you have to remember the glory of Egypt. Well, he was raised in Pharaoh's house, and then he was forgotten. Then he came back and was in charge of the whole land, ran the grainers and all. He was a big shot. He didn't care. He wanted to go back to the promised land. That's... The same thing ought to be true for big shots here in this world. There are lots of big shots. They're everywhere. But if they're Christian big shots, they need to be thinking about the city that has foundations, the homeland, the New Jerusalem where there is no slavery, but there's only freedom, heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, with those happy words, I'm finished with Hebrews 11.22. In our next audio, we'll take up the third section of chapter 11, and we'll talk about the faith of Moses. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 